Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by a special returning guest, Daniel Pianco, uh, and uh, his co-founder at, at Achieve Partners, uh, Ryan Craig. Uh, Ryan, Daniel, uh, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. Excited. So by way of introduction, uh, why don't you introduce uh, what is Achieve Partners uh, and uh, and some of the backstory behind it and, 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 and the evolution of it? Sure. So Daniel and I have been working together now for 17 years. And uh, so we started when I was at Warburg Pincus, uh, helping to build their education and training uh, investing uh, activity. And Daniel was at Stanford and came and worked off the side of my desk for a summer and, and happened to write the first draft of an investment memorandum that became Warburg's most successful education uh, investment called Bridgepoint uh, Education, uh, which uh, was one of the fastest growing online Universities in the U.S. Uh, went from zero to 80,000 students in five years uh, and went public. And so it was on, uh, on, on the back of that that we were able to raise uh, our first fund uh, together, University Ventures, uh, in 2011. Uh, and our new firm uh, is Achieve Partners uh, for reasons that will become clear. University Ventures <laughs> didn't really accurately describe uh, our strategy. So uh, we, uh, we needed a new name and uh, achieve is achieve is that name. And, and, and please get into uh, w- w- what is the strategy? What's what, what's what's upcoming? Sure. Uh, so, uh, you know, we've written written about, you know, hundreds of articles uh, on uh, the challenges that we have in higher education uh, and, uh, you know, what we call the crisis of completion uh, in higher education, the crisis of affordability. Uh, and increasingly, the crisis of employability. A lot of it was, was driven by the the fact that we, you know, in the sort of uh, er, earlier in the last uh, early in the last decade, um, looking at uh, the uh, statistics uh, of millennials coming out of the Great Recession uh, and seeing that uh, how how much they were underperforming prior generations on virtually every economic metric in terms of income. Wealth, home ownership, new business creation, millennials were really not launching in the same way that prior generation, that our generation uh, had uh, had launched. Uh, and obviously, the student loan debt they were accumulating was a big part of that, about $40,000 on average per student who takes on debt, uh, which is everyone who uh, can't pay out of pocket, which is the vast majority of, of students given the cost of college. Um, but the, the flip side of the affordability crisis is, is the crisis of employability, right? Because if every graduate came out uh, into a $60,000 a year job, you know, they'd be able to uh, easily afford $40,000 of student loan debt. But we know that about half of all students who graduate, and of course, only about half of students who start graduate, but the half who do graduate, of, of those who graduate, 50% uh, are underemployed in their first job. Uh, so if you're underemployed in your first job, pretty much half the time uh, you're going to be underemployed uh, five years later uh, and a significant portion still a decade. That's the problem that we were we were looking down the barrel of uh, at University Ventures. And we began investing in new pathways uh, to, uh, to, to jobs. Uh, we began investing in, for example, coding boot camps. And we coined this term last mile training to reflect wh- where we think the gap is between what our existing post-secondary education system does and what employers are seeking. And the real gap is not that uh, somehow colleges have gone backwards. It's just that they haven't come close to keeping up with the world of work and what employers are looking for. And what they're looking for increasingly are specific combinations of digital technical skills and business knowledge. And colleges and universities just simply don't train on either the digital skills or the business skills employers are seeking. So for example, I was speaking uh, two years ago to an audience of college and university presidents. And I asked them about 200 of them in the room. I said, you know, can you raise your hand if your school provides any training at all on the Salesforce platform? And not one hand went up. And that's a problem when there are 300,000 open Salesforce jobs and 5 million will be created over the next five years. Um, And it's a problem 
when virtually all sales jobs uh, in the U.S. now ask for some experience with a Salesforce or CRM uh, platform. So that that pathway that, you know, how many successful business leaders started their career working in sales, you know, right out of college for a large corporation. Uh, when those job descriptions ask for two years of Salesforce experience, uh, that pathway is closed off uh, to, you know, hundreds of thousands of young young Americans. Uh, so so the, that's the issue we were trying to, uh, we were trying to tackle. And we began investing, as I said, in bootcamp models and other, you know, models that, Maybe don't charge tuition, but take income share uh, agreements, uh, which I think you've t- you talked with Daniel about previously. We began kind of conceptualizing the skills gap in terms of frictions, right? Why don't you know tens of millions of people go out and get these digital skills and business skills that employers are seeking? Two reasons primarily: one is the cost of upskilling, and the second, and even more important one, is the uncertainty of the employment outcome, right? If you could wave a magic wand and say, you're not taking any financial risk and we're going to guarantee you a job, you'd have millions of people going out and getting these digital skills uh, and business skills that employers are looking for. But on the other side, you still have what we call hiring friction, which is the reduced propensity of employers to want to hire uh, candidates for these entry-level roles when they literally haven't done that job before, which turns the idea of an, of an entry-level job into an oxymoron. Uh, but that's the experience that you know millions of young people have, have had. Uh, and jobs that should be entry level, could have been entry level, maybe once we're entry level. Now we're asking for years uh, of experience or educational credentials that are just simply uh, unrealistic. We call that credential uh, inflation. So that's that's the challenge that we're uh, that, that we're seeing. Uh, and hiring friction is is manifested by uh, employers um, who uh, just you know want that perfect candidate ready to be productive on day one. Most American employers have sort of disinvested. Uh, in entry-level training. Uh, and there's a you know free rider problem, obviously, associated with it. If I invest in training my entry-level employees because 50% of uh, college grads who you know, enter uh, these jobs turn out of the jobs within two years, who's going to benefit? Probably my competitor uh, will free ride off my investment in entry-level training. So uh, with, the exce- with, with the number of prominent exceptions at the very sort of high end uh, of the economy, the vast majority of American employers have exited entry-level training. Uh, they want the perfect candidate served up on a silver platter. If they don't find that candidate, uh, they won't hire them. So, you know, Daniel and I, uh, about five years ago, began looking for new models, uh, new pathways to employment uh, that would reduce or eliminate both those frictions, the friction for the individual, the education friction, and the friction for the employer, the hiring friction. Uh, and we hit upon um, staffing, and business services uh, with the view that uh, the hardest part of this uh, problem to solve is that end connection to the employer. And that's a a connection that's very difficult for a school or education oriented uh, enterprise uh, to bridge simply because uh, employers just don't have the time of day to engage with, you know, hundreds of different schools, right? They just, they, they just won't. And to the extent they do on campus recruiting is fairly superficial done as an interface between human resources and career services at the, at the institutions. And there's no relationship really whatsoever to the actual hiring managers, the managers who have the need for the talent. In contrast to that, business services companies that are already delivering a valued service in a skill gap area uh, across technology or, or healthcare where the, the largest gaps are, they do have those relationships. Uh, and so you can leverage that distribution to push a new product, which is last mile training, uh, effectively, which is uh, developing purpose, purpose trained entry level talent, uh, and making it available to clients on a try before you buy basis to eliminate that hiring friction. And so we've now done that five or six times uh, across uh, our our portfolios, and we've seen that it can dramatically accelerate growth and really create what we call talent as a service businesses and uh, dramatically expand. Uh, revenue growth uh, and uh, expand margins as well. So that's that's what Achieve is doing. And obviously, when we're buying you know hundred million dollar IT staffing companies or we're buying uh, eighty million dollar healthcare IT solutions businesses, that's not that's neither university nor ventures. <laughs> so that's a long long way of explaining uh, why we have uh, a new firm and a new name. Uh, th- th- thanks for that. that. That's fascinating. 
why this may be obvious to you guys, but why don't and maybe you touched on it a little bit, but why why isn't there like Walmart University or you know uh, Facebook University or Google University? It, it, you know they're looking for recruiting proprietary you know recruiting pipelines, and people are looking for jobs. Or why isn't there sort of a white label solution that goes to these people and, and says that they'll create you know custom boot camps for them, so they don't have to you know all they need to do is lend their brand and 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 use them as a proprietary source. Is that a good business idea, or how do you think about that? Well, I think you know. Put, put, put yourself in the shoes of the uh, of, of Walmart uh, or any large employer. You know, for the most part, they're happier to leave jobs uh, unfilled uh, than they are to uh, take a necessary hiring uh, risk. And uh, we're we're uh, we, we really see that across the across the economy. Uh, to ask them, in addition to filling jobs, uh, to uh, invest in some elaborate training program, that's even that's asking even more. <laughs> You're asking them to make an even bigger investment than to invest in sort of unproven, unproven talent. So, you know, I think it's, it's, it's this sort of the late capitalist model, uh, which is, is sort of short, shorter term uh, thinking. Uh, what are the, uh, and, and the, the reality is nobody gets fired uh, for not filling a position, uh, you get fired for hiring the wrong person uh, for that uh, for that position. So most of the most of the initiatives we see in large corporates are uh, around uh, taking uh, employees, often sort of frontline uh, employees, and trying to figure out uh, upskilling pathways within the organization for them. Uh, and that's 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 critical. Uh, we absolutely need to need to see that. Uh, but that's not solving uh, the problem. There are 7 million unfilled jobs in America right now. And most of those jobs are sort of middle high, high skill uh, positions requiring these digital skills and business skills that we're, that we're seeing. Uh, and they're not going to be filled by sort of corporate upskilling uh, initiatives. There need to be pathways uh, from uh, outside uh, the enterprise uh, into those entry level positions within the, uh, within the enterprise. And, uh, employers are, are not going to do it themselves, uh, but you know who will who will build those pathways is, is companies that can build a business around providing that talent uh, to their clients, and that's where we're focused. I think there are two two kind of very different questions though embedded in what you're saying, though, Eric. One is should Google be a university as well, right? And so I think Google did launch the certificate program, and I think it's taking you know they're they're transforming. I think it's can these businesses that have ecosystems and platforms transform what they do where training is a cost center to where training or selling the certification on their platform becomes a revenue center. And, you know, Cisco did an amazing job of this, creating this, you know, Cisco university. And for years was kind of the the gold standard, but, but modern tech companies have sort of abandoned the ecosystem development to effectively nobody. And, and that's kind of why you have 300,000 unfilled jobs for Salesforce alone. You think about Google AdWords tax and all that. So, so one big bucket is, you know, can big tech companies and even healthcare companies and others like HCA just bought a nursing program. Can they um, uh, create a revenue center out of training on their platforms? And I think that's an amazing direction for uh, these tech companies to go. But the, but the other thing, most companies aren't Google. Google doesn't have a hiring problem. Where Google doesn't have a, a problem finding applicants. Everybody sends a resume to Google. Everybody knows Google, right? It's like USAA or Geico. I mean, who wants to wake up on Saturday morning and go join an insurance company? How many people say I want to be have a have a have a stunning career in healthcare IT? Effectively nobody. And so what the, the result is. You know, who's trained? How you know there? Are, you know there are a hundred thousand unfilled positions on electronic medical records, and and part of that is because no one actually says, "Hey, I want to be an EMR tech," right? But the job pays one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. So if you say to a biology major, "Hey, you have a choice. We'll train you. Um, we'll get you certified, and we'll get, you know you'll make one hundred fifty thousand dollars in three years out of college." That's that's an amazing win. Now the real question is, you know. Walmart won't do that because they don't view that provision of talent as a, as a revenue source, because if they train somebody on one of their systems, they can just walk down the street. And, and so 
what what I think the the modern apprenticeship is going to be what what we're doing here, which is creating these apprenticeships driven by specific platform needs, and then being able to you know effectively uh, monetize by going to multiple employers who have trouble attracting talent, you know, not the Googles, into their ecosystem. So I think you're, you're hitting on two very different points, right? I do think that Google will be one of the great educational institutions of the, of, of the 21st century. I just don't think they figured it out yet. What, what would it look like for them to, to figure it out, you think? Like what, what sort of, what form factor or, or what, like what, what could you envision when they, when they do figure it out or when someone like that figures it out? Well, I, I think these great brands... Um, and actually, we have an amazing company in our portfolio called Yellow Brick, which actually partners with brands. People trust brands more than they trust universities in a lot of respects. Like if you're going to get a, if you're the, the, getting the Google internship is far more valuable than having a Harvard degree for many people. And so, I, I think that to the, you know to to some extent, Google could create its own like elite university for programmers and charge a hundred thousand dollars a year, and they'd have lines out the door, right? And if you think about the margins on that, you know, it, it, it you know, having 2000 people at a hundred thousand dollars a year, will start even, you know, 10,000 people. And then, and then there's sort of this, you know, massive ability to, to, to approach large ecosystem development, like charging for certifications. Um, and I do think that people will pay, maybe not for the course so much because content is free, but they will pay for the certification. Um, and so I think, those are two directions that Google, for example, could go in. And, and so if in five to 10 years or in the next decade, the crisis of employability, is, is, is you, as is, is you discuss it, if, if, if we made a real dent, we as in you know, society made a real dent in, in solving for it, is it, do you think the biggest leverage point is sort of a new generation of, you know, apprenticeship and staffing companies? Yeah, it's new pathways to jobs. I like to say that you can imagine every large MSA in the country having you know, 20 to 30 of these pathways that are hiring a thousand uh, a year uh, into these, the, these programs that have no friction whatsoever, not asking you to take any financial risk, paying you from day one. It, it just levels the playing field so much uh, in America. It's no longer a question of pedigree or degree or wealth or who you know or network. Uh, these, these pathways are going to screen based on cognitive skills, technical skills, soft skills that are correlated to performance uh, in that role and persistence uh, in that in that role. And what we, we've seen uh, levels of diversity that are two to four times uh, the level in the industry uh, coming into these pathways. Uh, so, um, you know, ultimately, we think a lot of the social and political turmoil we've seen over the last decade since the Great Recession is is in large part a, a product of the fact that it seems like you know there there are there are fewer pathways to opportunity uh, for this generation than there were for prior generations. Certainly, you know, a bachelor's degree and graduating from college and all that's involved in that uh, is, is is pretty much right now, you know, the only pathway. Like unless you're Mark Zuckerberg. Um, <laughs> You know, you sort of, you know, t- the, 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 the dropout of the elite uh, college. But for the most part, you know, you, uh, young people or, or older people who were displaced uh, out of, you know, manufacturing economy or now due to COVID from retail or food service or travel or hospitality. Uh, what are the what are the pathways available to them? We need to create new new pathways. And to do that, you really need to think about. Uh, you know the, the frictions for the individual and the frictions for the uh, for the employer. Uh, so that's what we're doing, and we're do, we have a private sector solution for doing it. But we, you know, just yesterday I was having a call with uh, a big philanthropy, uh, thinking about you know how can how can this be done on a nonprofit basis? How could the government uh, build similar uh, similar similar pathways? But that's what it needs to that's what it needs to be for decades. Policymakers in America have struggled with the question of how to expand apprenticeships beyond building and construction trades. Uh, we've always, you know, looked to, you know, what, when are we going to see big apprenticeships in tech and in healthcare and financial services and so forth. And we've always waited for those large employers to launch these programs, but we're going to wait a long time uh, for them because they just have other priorities. Um, they're going to do what's in their own interest and not necessarily maybe even in their own, own long-term interest, but we do know uh, who, who will build these apprenticeship programs. And that is uh, businesses that can make a business uh, out of uh, providing 
uh, purpose-trained talent at scale uh, to their clients. And so that's where we're focused. I think one of the most interesting things, Eric, is like, you know, Silicon Valley tends to view the employment problem as let's let's get a tech solution on the table. Let's let's source people better. You know, someone pick, pitched me once in the Avengers when he puts the thing on his head and he can figure out where all the mutants are in the world. What's um, what's the machine called? Like go out and and in the future, you know, there'll be some way to reach out into the universe and find the smart people and bring them. And and it actually really doesn't work that way. The the, the people need whole solutions, right? If you're, you know, if you're a recent college grad or leaving the military or displaced by COVID or something else, like you need someone to actually sit down and talk to you and bring you to a, a, maybe even a place and say, here is your pathway. Because let me, let me ask you a question. And I know we're not supposed to ask the host a question, but like, what do you think the average biology major makes in the United States after graduating from college? Um, $80,000 $80,000 a year? I'm, 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 I'm guessing. $30,000. <laughs> now, now think about this, right? This is, this is a person who got to college, went through probably one of the hardest programs, right? Probably did some programming, stats, STEM, really like a hard program. But what were they trained for? They were trained to go to medical school. And if they don't get a job in medical school, like, are they going to go work at a lab? You know? And so, we have this amazing, t- and they're never going to get a, that job at Google, right? I mean, unless they went to Harvard, right? Yeah. Google is not hiring bio majors from San Diego State University. Right. That's, that is wasted human capital. And, and that person, you know, we're not going to find that person through any of the existing recruiting channels. They're not on the grid for anything that, um, that you would use the, Aven- you know, the Avengers Assemble device for. That person needs to be explained, hey, we're going to use a lot of technology to source you, we're going to use a lot of technology to, to, to get you through a program with online learning and, and competency-based instruction, and we're going to screen you for things like grit and capacity. And, and, and if you get through our screen, you're guaranteed a job at the end of it. And, and not only guaranteed a job making like $50,000, $60,000, so more than you would you know, in, in your other alternatives, your $30,000 alternatives, but in two or three years, you'll be making $150,000. And and the ability to, to do that at scale is probably the single most important thing from a social mobility perspective we can do as a country. And government hasn't been able to do that in the United States. Our, our, our systems are too fragmented. You know, we don't have the European system of apprenticeships that, that grew up in sort of, you know, Austria and, and, and Germany and Switzerland. Um, and, you know, we, we frequently hear, you know, every, every week, at least pre-COVID, Ryan likes to say that, you know, we had a different um, politician saying they've flown over to Germany for, you know, Riesling and Wiener Schnitzel to learn all about apprenticeships. And they come home back to America and they realize that universities and business don't talk to each other. Right. And so we're not going to have we're probably not going to have a government sector solution, unfortunately. So what is the private sector solution that connects and, and actually holds people's hands on both sides? right? The employer side and the consumer side um, to, to walk them together. Because as Ryan said, you know, no one wants a bunch of 20-somethings who don't know anything about their business running around their companies. You know, JP Morgan does not want a 22-year-old recent college graduate, you know, running around coding. I mean, it's just not, not going to happen. Uh, we're, that's really what we're trying to solve for. And, and, and you're taking more of the private equity route to do, I guess, because one, one path could be Hey, Lambda for X, let's, you know, seed a bunch of Lambda school competitors for different categories. Do you bristle at that or talk a little bit about? No, that's fine. I mean, the problem with Lambda and all of these programs is that, you know, it's, it's what we call a train and pray model, right? You, <laughs> you train and you kind of pray they get jobs uh, and you can be as, uh, you know, like um, Udacity uh, launched these programs uh, that were developed uh in conjunction with Google, right? I mean, you can have, you can have uh, as close a connection in terms of the curriculum development, but you'll note that Google isn't hiring anyone from the Udacity program. At least they haven't announced they are. So, um, <laughs> you know, our, our point is if you're seeking to be upskilled uh, in a uh, sector where there's a true talent gap and someone is asking you to uh, pay for that upskilling or take any financial risk at all, then they have either the wrong business model or a very unimaginative business model because there is a willing payor for that upskilling. 
And that's the employer at the other end. You can't find that talent. So it's about building that link, a, a true full stack uh, solution uh, from candidate uh, to employer uh, and solutions that start from the standpoint of I'm going to build a school or I'm going to build an online school uh, are never going to build that bridge completely. There'll be a, you know, uh, a, a disappointed bridge, a pier, <laughs> not a, not a full bridge. You'll end up jumping off that pier into the, into the ocean. Yeah. I mean, I, I, we're, we're, we're fans of Austin. He's an amazing person. And, and, and so, um, but you know, if you look at, you know, they just published their outcome report a couple of days ago and, you know, they're at like 70, 80% success rate, which is getting someone into a first job. Right. And then you know, how many of them, and I, I don't, I don't know if it's in the report this year, but then how many of them are there two or three years later? Right. How many, how many, and, and that's not a knock on what they're doing because I actually think what they're doing is very important. And, and, you know, we will have Lambda for X, right. That will be a business model, but it's, it's so much more powerful to say, not I'm Lambda for X, but I'm more like Accenture for X, right. Or I'm more like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm able to guarantee employment from day one. I'm able, I'm a full, I am a, a full stack solution <laughs> to the employment problem. And, and that's not just, again, not just what the consumer needs, because that 22-year-old biology major who doesn't know the first thing about healthcare IT and the hospital that knows they need a healthcare IT person who's certified in Epic, you know, that's a two-year, two to three-year investment. You know, it's, it's not a three-month investment. It's not, you know, Lambda is by definite, you know, it's hard. The, the longer that process goes, the harder it is. But to take someone from initial programmer or recent college grad or parting the military to actually certified and able to function on their own in a large complex organization is generally more than a three-month process. Yeah. And so is, is, is one of the reasons that you're choosing to work with later stage companies because they've already built those bridges? They, they've done the yeah. hard part already, basically? The, 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 that was our Copernican revolution, right? When we kind of sat down and said, like, what have we figured out? And what was our biggest problem when we owned Coding Bootcamp? Or, and still do it to some extent. It was getting an MSA, or getting a master services agreement with a, with, an, with a Fortune 500 company is a multi-year process. That doesn't work in venture world, right? It, yeah, no, and, and, and you probably won't if you're a startup. I mean, why would they, right? So, you know, the company we bought... Achieves First Investment is a healthcare IT solutions business that has MSAs with over 200 hospital systems around the country. That's the distribution we're buying. And now they can push a new product, which is purpose-trained entry-level talent made available on a try-before-you-buy basis to hospitals. And the hospitals are delighted. They love it. So what, what I'm sort of gathering from this conversation is we're sort of talking about it as though let's take the college education, uh, the higher education system as given. What changes can we make? Uh, or, or what improvements can we make given that higher ed is going to stay the, the way it is? Yeah. Uh, as we like to say, no one has ever gone broke betting against the pace of change in higher education. <laughs> and, and so just for, you know, maybe she has some giggles here, but if you could wave a wand and change anything uh, about the higher ed uh, structure such that it could address this specific problem um, or the crisis of employability and, and not just higher ed specifically, but maybe our culture around higher ed or just how we think about, you know, higher ed as a, as a country, uh, what might that be? <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll have different answers here. I'll take you, give you a very specific one, uh, which is turn degree programs upside down, uh, which, is, which means uh, in your first year, you're not taking big lecture classes in psychology and economics. You're actually earning a certificate uh, that's going to be recognized in industry. Uh, and if you progress beyond that, great, take that gen ed, but recognize that almost half of all students who uh, undertake degree programs don't complete. And the vast majority of them who don't complete are gone uh, within or after that first year. So at least leave them with, uh, with an industry recognized credential uh, that can be a value uh, to them. And that will also help, uh, you know, mitigate this sort of uh, college or bust or college or nothing uh, culture uh, that we have. Yeah. I, I mean, you're not going to be surprised that Ryan, and I, and by the way, this is not, you know, Harvard is not going to change, right? I mean, let's, let's be clear about what we're talking about here. But to some extent, it, it probably should as well, which is, and I think it's a riff on what Ryan said, which is I'm a big believer in, in work colleges. And if you're not familiar with them, um, you know, it, it's worth, it's like Northeastern's co-op program, right? Uh, and, and, and there are a growing number of schools that have adopted this model. 
And I, I think that it used to be that people went to college to learn and it was viewed as sort of like a stamp. Over the last 15, 20 years, the reason people go to college has changed. And now people go to college to get economic improvement. And that's why state governments fund it. That's why the federal government funds it. And, and I think the universities are behind in realizing that that change has happened underneath their feet. And so I think schools need to really consider what the return on investment is. Um, I just had a, the other piece to this is I think a lot of education should be free. Um, and I had a piece in the Wall Street Journal last week or two weeks, a few weeks ago, um, basically how you know, the private sector should figure out a way to get higher education free. I think those two things of making sort of the didactic portion of education effectively free, coupled with work, um, you can retain what makes college special, but change some pieces of it that are, that are really harming our, our, you know, our society. If I understand Brian Kaplan or, or Richard Vedder correctly, I think they would prefer that government just got out of the entire uh, business of, of higher education because I think they would say it sort of warps the incentives. Colleges don't have skin in the game. They're just you know making it more and more expensive because because they can, and that there are other you know solutions. I, I maybe ISAs, maybe crowdfunding, maybe other financial instruments that could be uh, introduced to push down the price of college separate from just, hey, pure competition, <laughs> um, you know, introducing co- competition and make it easier for, you know, uh, colleges to get accredited and, and become competitors. Does it, does all of that resonate with you? Or do you push back on any of that or what, um, what comes I think, Yeah, that's not going to happen. That <laughs> government has a role to play and, and, yeah. and, you know, where it has a role might be changing and might be different, but I, you know, it is economic suicide to stop investing in higher education as a country. So uh, I push back really strongly on that. I, th- I think what the delta between what you're describing and what I think Ryan and I are talking about is higher education is two things. One, it's civic education, right? It's, it's, it's learning, it's history, it's, it's, it's all that. Very, I was a history major, uh, Ryan as well, or, um, and, um, and, and, and job training, right? And those are two very different things, and they should not be conflated. And if you, if I had a wave a magic wand and say, how would I allocate government money? It would be to make sure that everybody has an equal shot, right? Making sure that there's plenty of funding to make sure that people who come from disadvantaged backgrounds get enough education and training to have a shot to be able to pass a job-oriented test, right? It's at the front end of of how you educate people. But I don't think government should be in the business of job training for the most part because they're not the right people to decide what good jobs are and how to get them. Yeah, I would say that if we had a, you know, a utopian K-12 education system that was preparing uh, 18-year-olds with uh, sort of all of the sort of basic uh, skills that they would need, plus, you know, some limited technical skills, then I might, you know, have more sympathy for uh, the Vetter the Kaplan uh, position. Uh, but there's just so much inequality uh, in this uh, country, structural and otherwise, uh, that, uh, you know, we're, we're mu- much of what higher education is trying to do is to try to redress the uh, inequality uh, of our K-12 uh, system. So uh, that's going to require probably more uh, investment. But we would like to see the investment uh, focused in a very different way, uh, whereas t- today the, the emphasis seems to be on you know, a combination of increasing access and debt forgiveness, we would like to see the investment in outcomes and uh, in jobs. I mean, that's ultimately what it's, what it's about. Uh, if you're, uh, you know, we, we know what it looks like where we have universal access to post-secondary education uh, and uh, poor or no uh, employment outcomes. That's called Europe. And <laughs> anyone really wants to build, build that uh, in America. And, and so what would it look like uh, to redirect that money to, to outcomes? Is it, you know, government works programs or jobs programs or, or it's, it, you know, it's been, you know, I, I, I would love to see, you know, some fraction uh, of the hundreds of billions of dollars that are spent uh, on uh, co- accredited colleges and universities uh, actually paying for placement. So I could imagine, you know, very large intermediaries getting into the kind of businesses and pathways that we're building uh, if the government said, look, if you take a candidate who fits these criteria and you invest in them and you train them and you mentor them and you end up placing them at a client, you know, here's fifty thousand dollars. 
for you. Well, that's interesting. Maybe I should think about, you know, building a new uh, talent as a service business within my existing business. And, you know, and that's where you get a pathway that's pushing through 10,000 new uh, candidates a year who otherwise would not have had a pathway uh, to those to those careers. So, I, you know, instead of just paying for education, why don't we pay for the outcome we're seeking, uh, which is placement uh, and career launch? Yeah. You, um, you, you wrote a book a few years ago called, called uh, you know, Unbundling Education uh, or Higher Education. How do we expect it to get further unbundled in the next, in the next few years to the next decade? Do, do we expect a lot of job training or, or uh, job, uh, you know, higher education to go to the boot camps instead of uh, university? Or how, how do we foresee the unbundling happening? Yeah, it's a great question. So when I wrote um, when I wrote that book in 2015, it was sort of before the last mile training <laughs> revolution, before we'd even coined the term uh, last mile training. Uh, so I wasn't sure. I was, you know, it, it was a, it was a vague idea uh, that uh, college, uh, as we know, it is a bundle uh, of a whole bunch of different products and services, uh, and we know that technology has a way of unbundling. It did in you know music and it. It's doing it in TV and so forth. So, you know, are we going to see an unbundling uh, of the degree? And, you know, there are others in the, in the space who have written, it's like, yes, technology itself is going to unbundle uh, degrees because uh, everything's going to be delivered online. And I think if COVID has shown us anything, uh, it's that uh, there aren't too many people who are interested in going to college uh, online if there's another uh, option. So I, I think, you know, the answer is, not that technology is unbundling uh, the degree uh, itself, but what technology is doing is it's changing the world of work, digital transformation of employment. uh, And it's changing the kinds of skills that employers are looking for uh, so that it's going to transform higher education in a roundabout way by changing uh, employer needs uh, and employer preferences. And they are the ultimate consumers of what higher education is producing, right? They're they're, they're the buyers of the talent uh, that higher education is producing. And if uh, their demands are just so far removed now from what higher education is producing, uh, it's, cre- it's going to create a huge gap. And so that's where we're going to see un- the unbundling, which is, as you say, the emergence of these new last mile programs, uh, boot camps, yes, income share programs, yes, but more, more likely and more scalable, these new sort of friction-free apprenticeship models. Uh, and if you can v- envisage a world where you have dozens of these in every large city in the country. And, you know, I've got an 18 year old who's contemplating whether or not to take on huge financial risk by attending a call. And again, if they get into, you know, a top 10 or top 20 school, they'll probably go, but that's like, you know, 2% of the population. So we're talking about the other 98%, you know, between a friction-free risk-free pathway to a good first job and taking on risk to attend uh, sort of a lesser brand name institution with no financial guarantee, I think you're going to find some very talented, very motivated uh, young people opting uh, for uh, the uh, the sort of risk-free uh, pathway. And that's how you get unbundling, uh, which is to say uh, when those uh, 98% of schools are seeing an enrollment shortfall because students are opting, uh, prospective students are opting for alternatives, faster and cheaper alternatives uh, to, uh, to, to good, good jobs, then they're going to have to change. Uh, but they won't change until they're forced to. Uh, and so, you know, this year we've seen an additional factor, which is COVID uh, and the fact that uh, we have virtually all but a couple, maybe a dozen universities in the country continuing to charge full freight for uh, what is mostly online learning, even where they've allowed students back to campus. Most of the learning is being done uh, online. Uh, and that's going to that, that's going to accelerate the unbundling. It's very clear that. The student experience is now uh, can be uh, separated from uh, the education component, which can be separated from the credential. Uh, so I think it's it's going to go even faster now. One example people like to use a lot in, in Silicon Valley's way well, is is Y Combinator, um, and and I've heard the argument of like, you know, YC mimics the the network, uh, the credential as it relates for for founders, um, but does it in you know for a, a, a different kind of business model, which is more advantageous for the, the student. And then also uh, just way less time, you know, three months in, instead of you know f- four years. But but that the it's it's you know the, the net education has already been unbundled in some sense with 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 uh, you know the internet. 
uh, the network, you'll see a lot more Y Combinator like programs, but it's it's the credential that's that's the hardest to really uh, c- c- compete with or, or or displace in terms of offering it, you know, eighteen year old something that would carries, you know. Yeah, but that's a you know, th- th- so, so the credential as the way we think about it, you know, as as oldies, uh, <laughs> we we think about it in terms of macro credentials, which were you know sort of generically uh, significant of capability, right? Uh, today we have the ability to go a level deeper to double click on that degree, if you will, and actually see skills. Uh, so, you know, the, no one's hiring a developer because of a, a degree they're hiring them because, uh, they're actually seeing, uh, their, their code. Uh, right. So, and there are other, lots of other, uh, areas of the economy now where you can actually, uh, where, where skills are visible, uh, whether in the, in the form of work product, or in the form of digital credentials. One of our university ventures portfolio companies is a company called Credly, uh, which uh, delivers about 90% of the micro-credentials uh, that are uh, issued uh, in, the, in the tech space. Uh, so uh, we, we see the sort of explosion uh, of micro, micro-credentialing. And if you have you know, ample micro-credentialing, then the value of that macro-credential uh, is, is much less. Yeah. We also talked in the beginning about uh, briefly addressed the crisis of affordability. Can you talk about if, if we were to make some real dent in that over the next decade, what, what that could look like? I think that uh, the analogy I would draw is, you know, and I, I wrote this piece that basically, you know, heavily regulated industries, prices compress very quickly when when things change. Um, and I started my career as a, actually as an investment banker at Goldman Sachs. And uh, my, one of my first clients was Ameritrade. And Ameritrade was founded by a guy named Joe Ricketts in Omaha, Nebraska. Exactly the wrong or the, the not exactly the person you would not expect to be revolutionizing an industry, right? As far from Silicon Valley as, as you could find. But, you know, he said, all right, fax me your brokerage orders and I'll complete them for 99 bucks. And then he said, do them on the Internet. And I'll do them for 10 bucks. And I remember uh, sitting in the back, uh, sitting in a, in a car with him kind of really confused by his business model. Cause I was like, how are you going to make it work? If, if, you know, you don't, you know, don't charge. He's like, I'm going to, I'm going to make it free. And, and he kind of looked at me, he's like, if we don't make it free, someone else will. Right. And, and you think about what ended up happening was now they're selling order flow and Robinhood makes all of its money from order flow, not from charging for the trade. And, and Google provides Gmail for free in return for making, you know, the customer effectively the, the, the value, right? The customer information, the value. And I, and I think something similar will happen in education where, you know, the, the end product of education will be some version of uh, connect of, of filling a specific job need in society that someone is willing to pay for, whether it's the government or industry. And so, you know, I think that everyone always talks about kind of the macro trend that higher education is just getting more expensive and, and, and that is true. And what's happening, though, and uh, you're seeing more and more schools do this, is they realize they can't charge that much. We've, we've kind of reached that some, somewhere COVID, I think, is breaking the camel's back, the last straw that breaks the camel's back. And you've seen a number of universities publicly announce significant decreases in price. Um, but I don't think they've quite conceptualized how big the bubble bursting can be. You know, once you once you go and you realize that you can get the same degree from Western governors for ten thousand, that you're paying for a you know no name middle you know school that no one's ever heard of in the middle of the country, you know why would I pay fifty thousand dollars for that when I can pay ten thousand for an online degree? You know, there there are a handful of these universities now that are basically purely online, nonprofit, pretty good quality, very good quality. Western governors, Southern New Hampshire, you know, Grand Canyon. You know, they're, they're American public where I'm on the board, you know, that are driving down price very dramatically. And, and I think that's sort of the future. Um, and, and I think that increasingly people will look at two different programs and say, one's 10,000, one's 50, I'm going to take 10,000. And then someone's going to come along and figure out how to say, you know, the product is a student at the end of it, and I'm going to charge you nothing. And, and, and like, that's the sharp slope we're on. And that, that's helpful context. Maybe for some historical overview, and maybe there's so many things, but if you were to look back at the you know last 50 years or, or further and, and assess sort of like what's the biggest things that happened that have led to us being in this mess that we are in? <laughs> what, what were sort of the biggest catalysts or biggest trends? That's points? funny. I, I, I literally have a piece coming out tomorrow where I talk about this is all the baby boomers' fault. 
blame the boomers because uh, really before them, there were, you know, multiple pathways to opportunity in this country. Uh, And it's sort of the mass attendance at uh, college turned that into the sole pathway uh, to, 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 to economic uh, prosperity and, or maybe to put it a better way, the sole respectable uh, pathway. Uh, And, you know, there's certainly a bit of snob appeal uh, associated uh, with that. Uh, So, um, you know, that, that I think has been really deleterious. Uh, I think we, this is a, if you look at, Millennials and now Gen Z, they're going to, they're much more than sort of snob appeal or the sort of self-discovery or uh, self-realization that uh, purportedly comes from a four-year journey uh, at a, at an accredited college. They, they much, uh, they they value much more highly uh, uh, security uh, guarantees of career, financial uh, well-being uh, and purpose, you know, so if we can provide uh, clear, direct pathways uh, to purposeful uh, uh, careers uh, and jobs that don't require them to take inordinate financial risk. They're going to be much, much, much better off uh, than today's students are. In our last, you know, few, few remaining minutes here, I'm curious for anything that we didn't cover that seems uh, seems, you know, helpful for 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 people to know or for that context. Another way of asking that question, um, uh, Ryan, would be. If, if you wrote a, 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 your next book on, on higher education, what would this new take be? <laughs> I get asked that. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, I think, you know, there, there's, you know, a, 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 a scenario in which uh, we do have sort of a sort of mass exodus from the current uh, four-year degree system. And I, I'm concerned as to, you know, what, what, what we, what we might lose there. Right. I mean, there's, there's certainly uh you know, an element of uh, discovery, uh, general education uh, that's uh, not being delivered now in our K-12 system uh, that either need, need to be replaced uh, by a K-12 or uh, perhaps uh, supplemented after, uh, afterwards and sort of restaging how that, uh, how, how that occurs. But for now, I think we're, we're just happy uh, building and chronicling the building of these new these new pathways, there's a lot of work to do. So you're, you're not going to see a new book for me for a while until we have, you know, a mass of these, uh, these new pathways up and up and running and succeeding. I, I think Ryan's next book is actually going to be about the rebundling of higher education. And, and I think this That's happens possible. a lot, which is you, know, you go through these cycles where you, you know, the cable, the unbundling of cable, actually now it's kind of rebundled to Netflix and sort of different packaging of, of the bundle. Um, and, and I, I, I just want to echo Ryan. I, people think that we're opposed to higher education or funding of higher education. Like that, that's really not what we're about. Education. I mean, we're in this because we think education is actually critically important to our society. And, and I, I think that too often when people start talking about what's wrong with higher education and education in general, they, they forget what's right about it. And, you know, our society, you, you say, look back 50 years, you know, um, what institution, what are the oldest institutions we have as a society? You know, besides the Catholic Church today, I don't think we have an institution older than the university. And so I, I think, you know, there's plenty to complain about. Um, and there are plenty to say who, you know, we can blame boomers all we want. But uh, there is a reason why universities exist. And, and I don't think that's going to go away. In fact, I think some of the things you know, my call to your kind of uh, viewership or readership or whatever we call podcastership is, you know, the, the, the robber barons of the late 19th century created the modern university. They created the research university. They created Stanford. Leland Stanford was a robber baron. You know, Carnegie Mellon was two robber barons put together. You know, MIT was, was funded by robber barons. Johns Hopkins University, right? And they revolutionized the university. And, and, and I think what I'm most disappointed with Silicon Valley about is that, you know, they haven't made the donations to sort of the, the founding of, of sort of what the next thing is in, in how people transmit knowledge to the next generation. And I don't want to lose that. And I, I fear that with, you know, even with some of what we do, we don't want to be part of losing that as a society. Who is the rebundler? And, and what, what could that look like? 
<laughs> you asked, you asked what his next book. I, I, I tried to throw out his next book, and now you're asking what the next book's really it's about. about. <laughs> <laughs> Chapter change. You're not going to get a book published unless you know what it's about. I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, if, if, if that's too- it's a great yeah. question. Look, I think I think there are going to be lots of uh, the level of of entrepreneurship and innovation. I, I I joked before about the pace of change in higher education, or half joked. You know, you're, you're, they're going to be uh, thousands of, of dynamic, experienced uh, higher education managers and entrepreneurs running around uh, trying to figure that uh, figure that out. And you know, the challenge is that uh, you're dealing with a regulated, a highly regulated uh, industry. Uh, so it's not it's not as simple as just saying you're a university <laughs> and opening the door. Um, but uh, we're confident that there will be new models uh, and solutions and probably models and solutions that actually have, uh, you know, public uh, sanction and approval for uh, and probably new funding models uh, as well. So it's not going to happen overnight, but um, it will, it will happen, but it's not going to happen because they want to do it. It's going to happen because uh, uh, students uh, will be uh, voting with their feet in favor of faster and cheaper models. uh, And uh, these universities will have, no choice but to uh, look for look for uh, alternative models. Awesome. That's, that's a great place to, to wrap. Uh, my guests today have been Ryan Craig and Daniel Pianco of Achieve Partners. Uh, Ryan, uh, Daniel, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. That was fun. Thanks, Eric. Pleasure. Thanks. And Ryan's books are Unbundling the University and a, and a New You. Uh, and I, they're both great reads. I highly recommend reading them. And, and of course, you know, stay tuned for his future book. <laughs> <laughs> you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.